All right, Grove. Let's get going. We are in week two of our new series in prayer. The series is called The Lord's Prayer, and we're looking at just that, the Lord's Prayer. Now, this collection of words in the Lord's Prayer is probably a collection of words that has been spoken more than any other words throughout the history of the world. And these words might be the most important words that have ever been uttered by the lips of your soul. And when we open up this prayer and we look at it, we have a bit of a problem. Because the very first thing that we pray, we don't even know what it means. We saw last week this address where, where we are coming to God like he is our father in heaven. And if you weren't here for that, I would recommend you go back and you listen to it. Today, we get to the first line that we ask of God, the very first thing. And, you know, this is Jesus. Is, he's telling you how to pray, and this is the first thing he tells you to pray. So you should listen to it. And the line is, hallowed be your name. And I would say that the majority of us probably don't know the full extent to what that word hallowed means. And if you look at your tombstone after you die, so you have your day of death and you have your day of birth and your day of death. And there's a line in between. And that line represents your desperate search to find something to hollow. That's what your life is. You're desperately searching for it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Hallowed be your name. So we're in Matthew 6, 6 verses 9 through 13. This is the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now here's the first point, death and glory. In a book of wisdom in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, there's this line that says God has written eternity into our hearts. Which means you long for eternity. But yet as you approach death or as you think of death, but yet you have eternity in your heart, what you begin to do is to look for a solution to death. And, well, what's it going to be? Well, this line that says, hallowed be your name, the word hallowed means something that's glorious. It's sacred. It's wonderful. It's breathtaking. It's majestic. In fact, it's so amazing, the glory of God, that you look at it and you say, this is it. This is the thing and the only thing that is able to defeat death. So you say that in your mind because you're looking for a solution to death. And then we think of this prayer as hallowed be your name. And what we're doing is we're saying by hallowed be your name, we're saying, okay, God, you are the most glorious thing that I've ever seen. And I need to know that right now because I don't believe it in this moment. So hollow your name, meaning show me how wonderful you are. Show me your greatness. Captivate me by who you are so I might be swept up into your glory. That's what the prayer is. So, and then at the end of the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us from all evil. Now, I want to tell you something. If you've watched the movie Harry Potter, there's this line that says, the greatest enemy to be defeated, the last enemy is death. And I just want you to know, if you didn't know this, that the writer of Harry Potter has stolen that from Paul. Because in Corinthians, Paul says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. 
So you put all that together and what you find is that it's the glory of God revealed to you and enveloped in you like you are swimming in it that when you face death, you get through it. It it, it barely touches you. It's like a shadow on you. Now here becomes our problem. Instead of chasing after the glory of God, we chase after our own glory. And I'm telling you that you do it. And I promise you that you do it. And you do it in subtle ways. You do it in secretive ways. And you do it in ways that you don't even realize you're doing it. Because you don't want to live your life saying, hey, I'm working for my own glory here. I don't know if you see me doing it, but that's what I'm doing. And when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're saying this to God. God, I have a problem. I can't stop seeking my own glory. And I need your help. I need you to intervene. I need you to show me how wonderful you are so I will stop this desperate search for my own glory. The words that are just before and just after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is dealing with this with hypocrites. And here's what the hypocrites are doing. They are praying in ways so that they get glory. And they are fasting in ways that they get glory. And that's what's surrounding the Lord's prayer. And the question becomes, why do we keep seeking our own glory? And the answer is because if we can convince enough people that we're wonderful, we might finally believe it's true. And then maybe God might believe it. If we can convince enough people that we have some worth, and some value, then maybe we'll actually begin to believe it. And maybe then God might believe it to be true. In fact, these religious hypocrites, you know what they're doing? They're, they're desperately searching for enough glory for themselves, so that, and, and they need people to see it. And by other people seeing it, they say, okay, maybe I am something. And then maybe I do have something to offer God on the day of my death, so he might allow me to pass through death. In other words, what you're doing right now Potentially even the reason that you are here is so you can check something off a list to say, look, I've done all the things that are needed to be done to be seen as someone who is worthy, seen as someone who is glorious. I mean, this is what you're doing. If you do enough good things, then maybe you will begin to have more glory and then you will have worth and then you become lovable to the people around you and to God. And when you pray, hallowed be your name, what you come to the realization of, if you understand this prayer, is that there is nothing that you can do that will give you the glory that you need to pass through death. You won't be glorious enough. You need him to envelop you in his glory, and then you pass through it. We need God to save us from ourselves. And... Um, but, and we know this, but we keep trying. So when I was 18, I auditioned for a music scholarship and I sat down with the professor. I did my little ditty. And then afterwards he said, David, why do you want to study music? And I looked at him with complete seriousness, with a little bit of a smile on my face. And I lifted up both of my arms and I said, because I want to be famous. And he said, don't we all, David? And now, now, what was I doing? I mean, it sounds ridiculous and it sounds funny, 
but it's actually coming, like I was willing to say that out loud. And what it tells you is that I saw this as my solution. If I could convince enough people that I was worth something, well then maybe I would feel worth something. And then maybe I'd start finally feeling fully alive. And so I begin to, to chase after this. And in a way, it's, it's us trying to make sure we're going to feel okay. And, and you heard what my professor said. He said, don't we all? Don't we all just want to feel like we're worth something? Don't we all want to feel like we're glorious? And like, or, or maybe the whole world doesn't need to know, but maybe one person. If we could just hear one person say, you are enough, well, then maybe that's enough for us. And then we do get lifted up into some type of glory. When you pray, hallowed be your name, you are asking God to pull the veil back and reveal his glory that's so wonderful, so beautiful, so majestic that we can't take our eyes off of it. And then from that, we feel finally alive. And you're gonna chase your whole life trying to get a glory for yourself to make you feel alive and none of it's gonna work because you need him and his glory. And it's a glory that's stronger than death. And when you pray this prayer, when it says the word, hallowed be your name, this is our second point, knowledge of glory, the name part means that you have an intimate understanding of the glory of God. In other words, we're not looking at God in an abstract way. We're looking at him in a real way where we have experienced him. When it says, hallowed be your name, what it means is when you hear the name of God, Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, whenever you hear these words, it means that you have a right understanding of who he is. And when you have a right understanding of who he is, you then see his glory and you're overwhelmed by it. So when you hear the, my name, David, or Pastor David, or David Hancock, and you hear these words, uh, you think of things, and now you know this about me. You, you maybe are picturing me with my hands up at 18, telling my professor that I want to be famous. You also think of me as a pastor, and you have both positive and negative ideas about me in your mind. Now, some of those might be right, but Elise, my wife, when she hears my name, she has a better understanding of what that name represents because she knows me better. So when we think of Hollywood being the name of God, we're thinking of God, make clear for us who you are. Help us know what you have done for us and what it all means for us. So, you know, there's nothing more uh, painful in a lot of ways than being misunderstood. When I was writing the sermon, somebody was texting me about how they were being misunderstood. Now, it's a lonely feeling. God is the most misunderstood in all the cosmos. We have no idea the grandeur that his name holds. And in order to understand him, it means we need to understand the attributes of God. So I just want to walk through some of these for you. We say, who is God? If we're going to hollow his name, it means God, show us who you are. So let's go look at him. First, God is infinite, which means he has no beginning and no end. He always was, always is, and always will be. It, it, he is immutable, which means he is unchanging. 
He is always good no matter what. And if you are experiencing him in a way that doesn't seem like he's good, then you do not understand his name in that moment. He is self-sufficient, which means he has no need. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, before creation, God was so lonely. And in his loneliness, he said, I have an idea. I will make humanity. Because that was a good idea because we were going to love him perfectly the whole time, right? No, he had infinite love and community in the Father, Son, and Spirit all together. It was out of a fullness of love that creation is birthed. So he's, he's immutable. He is self-sufficient, and which means he has no need. He's just perfectly complete. He's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He's omni- omnipotent, all-powerful. Did I do that one? Um, and he's omnipresent. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means he's here right now, and it means he's over there, and it means he's also on the other side of the world. But he's not just present in all places. He's present in all places at all times because God is outside of time, which means there was a time before time began, which actually doesn't even make sense as a statement that God was existing outside of time, and then he created time, and then he said, I'm going to show off a little bit, and I'm going to exist simultaneously at all times. If you have no idea what I just said, then I'll just explain it to you a little better. In, right now, in the past, God is existing and present in the past. He is present here with us. And in the future, five years from now, God is already there, living there as if it's the present. In all times and in all spaces. He is wise. He is good. He is faithful. He is perfect. He is loving, and he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is holy, and he is glorious. And he isn't just those things. He is the very definition of those things. He isn't just a loving God. He is the very definition of love. He isn't just a good God. He is goodness itself. And if you begin to try to define God by those things, in other words, you say, well, this is my idea of what love is, so I'm going to measure God based off of what my idea of love is, well, then you're doing it wrong. Love is measured by who God is because he is love. He's the ultimate definition of everything. He's the measurement of everything. You weigh something by comparing it to God. You don't compare God to something else. He is perfect. And if you're ever reading the scriptures and you say something like, man, God does not seem loving here to me. Well, what you have here is a concoction of his love and his justice and his mercy and his wisdom all coming together. And, and then you take those aspects or those attributes of God and then you say, and this world has fallen. And this is what it looks like for God to come into a fallen world. And this is how things take place. And so if you want to know what it looks like when God comes into a fallen world and brings all of these attributes of who he is into this fallen world, then you just read the Bible. And when it doesn't begin to make sense that he is loving, it's just because in that moment, you don't know how to put together his love with his wisdom and his justice in a world that has fallen. So to hollow his name means that despite everything happening in our world, we look at him and we know who he is and we have an idea. And it's not just that we have an idea, it's that we have intimacy with him. Meaning there is a real personal understanding. Like, 
you can know honey is sweet, but it's not until you taste it that you understand what sweetness is and what honey is. So we have to get a sense of all of these things about God. And then when we do, we know what his name actually is. So to hollow his name means show us who you are. We have all experienced Christians who have treated people poorly, maybe us poorly. And maybe they're not Christians at all, but they have the appearance of it because they've adopted all of the practices. They're here on Sunday. They pray every day. They read their Bible. They know it really well. They give 10% of their income, and yet they treat people bad. And they treat people bad, well, because they don't know who God is. Because we are made to be the image of God, which means we're living, breathing mirrors. So if a living, breathing mirror is looking at God, what is reflected back out? All the attributes of God. So if you aren't loving people well, it's because in that moment, you're not hollowing God. What we need most is to see his glory unveiled. All of your problems in life, the solution is to see him as he is, as he really is, and then you begin to reflect him. Here becomes the problem. When we meet somebody who claims to be a Christian but clearly is not, it's like they're taking a test about God. And they're passing it with flying colors, but they don't actually know who he is. Like you can imagine before Elise and I get, got married, if, if I needed to just take a test to know what she was and what she was all about, well, that wouldn't make any sense because I'm not experiencing those things. So I might be able to pass a test about her, but that doesn't mean I know her. And you might be able to pass a test about me, but Elise has experienced my love in a way that you haven't. And I have caused Elise pain in ways that you would not know that I have caused you because, well, you don't know me the way that she does. She knows the good and the bad and the ugly of me. So to know the name of God, you, you know, you, if you know my name, you go, eh. But if you know the name of God, you, your knees begin to quake underneath you and you drop to them and bow to him and worship because you've seen him. And so you might be able to pass a test about God, but not actually know him. And that's pretty serious stuff. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew. Matthew 7, a little bit past where we are in our verses, he says, On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He didn't know them because they didn't know him and his name. In fact, they were using his name the wrong way because they never actually had an encounter with him. And this could also happen. Maybe suffering has bitten you. And in the biting, you start looking at God and you say, I thought I knew who you were, but I'm not so sure I do anymore. 
And what's happening to you right now is you are getting to know God in a new way. You're getting to know him through the lens of suffering. You're getting to know him in a world that has fallen. And you, you've seen him before and you said, yes, he's good. And now you're beginning to question all of it. But what I would argue is that it's in suffering that you get to know God the best because you're depending on him more than you ever had. So when my son Cruz got diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, the first two years were like hell. And I know God and I know he's good and I know he's loving. And I knew that then too. And I had experienced it. But I wasn't getting a sense of it for those two years. And it really felt like hell. And what happened is I had to discover God in a new way. I had to discover God while I was surrounded by suffering. And then I had to see him and his glory pierce through the suffering. And then when it happened, I knew God in a better way than I had before. So it's through the suffering often that we discover who God really is. Because it's then that we have to surrender him, surrender to him, not surrender him. Um, there's a novel called The Name of the Wind. And the idea of it is that if you know the name of something so well, like you're intimate with it, then you can control it. But when you know the name of God, you don't control him. He controls you. You're surrendered to him. And then when you are surrendered to God, when you're surrendered to him, it's like his beauty finally gets in you and then it bubbles up into joy and then worship so okay 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 this is our third point praise praise and glory the the thing that you want most i don't know if you know this yet but i'm going to let you know the thing that you want most is joy and happiness and you chase after love because you think love will make you happy and give you joy, and it will. And you chase after peace because you think peace will give you joy and happiness, and it will. And you chase after strength because you want to know that no matter what you face, there's something in you that can still have this joy and happiness. And if you have that kind of strength, then you will have joy and it won't be lost. And for God's name to be hollowed means that you have seen his glory, and it has filled you up, and now there's joy bubbling in you and it has nowhere else out to go but praise. So for the longest time, I kept trying to define what worship is. And every time I tried to define it, I felt like it was slipping through my fingers like water. And then I read C.S. Lewis's work on the Psalms. And he's, here's what he says about praise. He says, praise is when joy gets in you. When you see the beauty of God and in seeing it, joy begins to bubble up in you. And that joy grows and grows and grows until it has nowhere else to go and it bursts out of you. And when it bursts out, it's praise. And the picture, when we together as a church say, God, hallowed be your name, what the image is, is remember, this is a communal prayer, our Father. So what the picture is, is all of us together having a joy that is welling up in us that has nowhere else to go but out. And what that means is every single one of you have a story. You have a lot of stories. And you have stories of pain 
and suffering and loss and heartbreak. And you have a lot of sins. And because of those sins, you have shame and you have guilt. And yet, the glory of God has pierced through. This is a redemption story. And when his glory pierced through, you were filled with a joy so great that it bubbled up into worship. And now, so the picture is all of us together praising God. This is what it means to say, hallowed be your name. No, so, okay, if you lack joy, what do you do? You pray this prayer, God, hallowed be your name. If you lack peace, you pray this prayer, God, hallowed be your name. Now, okay, we don't just want joy for a moment, though we want it continually. Well, Paul talks about praising God continually, which feels in a lot of ways like, how do you do that? So immediately you've got to conclude that prayer is probably not what you think it is. It's not some formal thing that you're praying to God out loud like this is what prayer is. But it's communing with him. And all right, so Elise and I, every night, we pray together before we go to bed. Um, If we're fighting, we pray together. It's a non-negotiable. If I'm out of town, I call her and we pray together. And there's nothing better that you can do for your marriage than that. But something else I've been doing recently is right before I fall asleep, I just pray, God, be with me. And what's been happening is I've been getting a very strong sense of his presence. And it's bringing me to this place of an overwhelming amount of comfort and joy. And it doesn't happen every night. But he's given me this gift right now, and so I'm loving it, and I'm taking advantage of this. So you take that idea that God is with us, and then you pray this prayer, hallowed be your name. So what it means is if you're lacking joy in your life, and you're going about your day, and you pray, God, hallowed be your name, what you're praying is, God, come and be with me, and show me how great you are. Let me be amazed by you, and in that prayer, then you're filled with joy, and then you begin to praise him. When you're suffering, you say, God, hallowed be your name. And when he answers that prayer, I want to tell you what it means. It means that you will have seen the suffering was worth it. Because the suffering caused you to reach out to him. And when you did, the veil opened up and his joy, his glory poured in. And when his glory poured in, you got joy. And that joy bubbled up into praise. And you were thankful for the suffering because the suffering gave you more of him. When you sin and you feel guilt and shame for it. But then you pray, God, hallowed be your name. What you have a picture of now is the cross. In the empty grave. And you look upon your Savior who has taken your sins upon himself on the cross, and you look at him with so much thanks, and you see that all that he was willing to do for you, and it overwhelms you by him and who he is, and then it makes you have more joy. And so, guess what? The sin in your life has somehow led you to see the glory of God. And don't hear this your pastor is not telling you to sin more. But what I am telling you is that your road of sin can be also a road that leads to the glory of God if you will pray this prayer with all of your heart. And when you're feeling misunderstood in this life, 
You look at the God who has been misunderstood and you say to yourself, wow, he has been misunderstood far more than me. So then you can understand his mis- how he's been misunderstood and then, well, now you're seeing his glory. All right, look. All of that means that he will take everything that's bad that's happening to you and use it to show you his glory and then you'll see it as good. The solution to all your problems is his glory. And Christianity keeps doing something that annoys the rest of the world. It keeps saying Christ is the only way. It keeps like banging it over our heads. He is the solution to every single problem we see in our world. Everything is him as the answer. So why is that? Why does, it, why does it have to be Christ? Let's read what he says. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? I wonder how long we've been playing church, but we don't really fully know him. I wonder how much we're missing out by being distracted by all of our distractions when the God of wonder and beauty is right before us and we're missing him. Here is why it must be Christ. Because absolutely every attribute that the Father has and God has is beheld in Christ. He's the exact imprint of the Father. So you take all of the attributes, all the things of who he is. Christ, he's infinite, yet he enters into time. Okay, before I do this, let me tell you what's happening. In Christ, you have all of the things about who God is, and they're all used to bring about salvation. So watch. He's infinite, yet he enters into time. He's immutable, meaning he's never changing, but he comes into a changing world to be a foundation that we can stand upon because he's never changing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, yet on the cross he gives all of his power away. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, yet he takes the road to have to discover the Father the same way we have to. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere, yet he confines himself to the locale of one man. He's wise in that he looks at the cross and while the world sees it as folly, he would use the cross to be the instrument to save us. He is faithful in that he's going to keep every one of his promises. He's good in that he will look at evil and then enter into it to overwhelm evil with his good. And then use that evil to destroy itself. He's merciful in that while we're killing him, he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. 
He's gracious in that he pursues sinners. He's perfect, yet he became sin. Did you know this? He who knew no sin became sin for us. He's just, but then he takes all of his righteousness and he gives it to us who don't deserve it and haven't earned it. He's, he's loving in that he gave his life for us. And he's holy in that he's altogether different, yet he became like us so we could become like him. And he's glorious in that he is all of these things all at once, like dynamite. And his glory can explode into your life if you will pray this prayer from the bottom of your heart. God, hallowed be your name. And when you do, and he shows you his glory, you will drop to your knees. And you'll live your life as if you are on your knees for the glory of God. And then you'll begin to build your life around him. And he will become the central thing that you live for. And you'll just lay down all these things that you think were important. And he'll become important. And then he'll show you what should be important in your life. Because he's the central theme of your life. So, let's pray this prayer together as a community of people. And as we do, let's encounter his glory, which will give us joy that result in praise. Let's pray. Father, we love you for sending your son. And where my words have failed to give the evidence of who you are and all you've done for us, God, I pray that you would just show us you. And where I am unable, you are able. And where we get lost in seeking our own glory, God, I pray that you would show us you and we would see you're enough. And that from then on, we would build our life around you and you alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at The Grove Church Official, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.